This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Hey everyone, you're listening to Code Switch. I'm B.A. Parker, and today I'm joined by one of the show's producers, Jess Kung. Hey, Jess. Hey, Parker. Okay, today I want to talk about Japanese-American musicians of different generations, and particularly how their music relates to the incarceration of people of Japanese descent in the U.S. during World War II. And I want to start on an unbearably cold morning on a snowy field in southeast Arkansas. Actually, Parker, this is a scene from a documentary. I can show you. So there's a man in front of a big stone marker. And it cuts to him standing in the vast snowy field playing the violin. The place is the site of the Jerome War Relocation Center, where more than 8,000 Japanese Americans were incarcerated over 21 months. It was the last camp to open and the first to close. It was so cold that my brain was not functioning, you know. How was tuning in the cold? Awful. That's the violin player, Kaoru Ishibashi. He usually shortens his name to K, but he's probably best known as Kishibashi. My name's Kishibashi. I'm a musician. I'm a composer. Uh, I just made a movie. Kay grew up in Virginia, and his parents immigrated from Japan in the 70s. And what he's playing here is what came out of his experience immersing himself in the stories of Jerome and other World War II incarceration camps and the broader history of Japanese Americans who came before him. He turned that improvisation into this song, theme for Jerome. It was particularly painful to me when I realized that this was an immigrant population, incarcerated and forced to assimilate. I knew that I wanted to write a melody that had a Japanese flavor, you know. There's a lot lot of Japanese songs that are basically in that scale. It's a pentatonic scale that exists only in Japan and, coincidentally, in Ethiopia. You have that melody with you, but you've forgotten the words, you've forgotten the Japanese. And it's just this kind of ghost of your ancestors that you still remember and feel, but you just can't connect with them. And when they sleep, she'd sing this melody to her beloved sons, forgotten words from Japan. I think this song is really compelling. And a thing that's interesting to me about it is that this is essentially a fictional lullaby composed to tell this story. 
and it's informed by research and music theory and empathy. Thank you guys so much for coming. I'm a, my parents were post-war immigrants, and I uh, actually have no direct connection to the incarceration, except that it would be like I would have probably been in it. Just to be clear, Kishibashi isn't a direct descendant of the Japanese-American incarceration, but is making music about the Japanese-American incarceration? Yeah. What you just heard is a scene from his album and documentary project, Omayari. It's the result of him traveling to a bunch of different sites of incarceration, learning history, composing music. In that scene, he's in Wyoming, near the site of the Heart Mountain War Relocation Center, in a half-restored barrack. It's his first visit to the site, and he's throwing a community outreach concert for a crowd of locals. It's really kind of in the middle of nowhere, Cody, Wyoming, you know, and it's like, you know, it's like the least populous state where there's more cows than people. And uh, that was really early on. So I'm really fumbling around and feeling (laughs) insecure about knowing if I even deserve to be telling this story. I think that discomfort he's describing is one reason why this whole thing is interesting to me. Different waves of immigrants, even from the same mother country, aren't always guaranteed to share a lot, you know? There can be disparities in education, class, dialects, language, politics. But Jess, it's also clearly not nothing. I mean, yeah. But I'm curious why people of different Japanese-American backgrounds seem to reach for this history. Like... A good amount of Omayari is Kishibashi reflecting on how learning this history made him re-examine his identity. He says he didn't really have a Japanese-American community growing up. Like, at school, he learned to ignore that part of himself. This is the 80s, you know. So just kind of hid behind a, just a veneer of um, just, a, I'm just your friend here, I'm not like Asian. And when he was coming up as a musician in the early 2000s, he was really conscious of how Japanese his image could be. Being a male Asian violinist was very, like, characterized and kind of a stereotype almost. So I had to, like, find a balance of being, like, a cool Asian violinist or just a violinist who also happened to be Asian. I didn't want to be, like, world music. So I was very conscious to find this just slight Japanese-ness in a very white indie rock world. For what it's worth, Kishibashi sings in Japanese across all of his albums. That seems like a contradiction, right? He was trying to downplay being Japanese while also being undeniably Japanese. Yeah, I mean, it's like somewhat legible to me, but it is this kind of like messy thing. I think it's something that came into sharper relief when Kay started working with people who are third or fourth generation Japanese-American. We used to sort of tease Kay sometimes because it was like, Kay, you sing in Japanese. And so how, like, how do you see that separation between like the Japanese parts of you and the American parts of you? We're going to get into that question and who's asking it later. But first, let's do a quick explanatory comma. After the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1942, almost every person of Japanese ancestry on the West Coast, which is where almost that entire population lived, were sent to, quote, war relocation camps. That's about 122,000 people. Decades later, the U.S. government actually admitted wrongdoing, that it was a racist and knee-jerk policy. They offered a national apology and financial redress. 
In the 90s, surviving detainees were given a check for $20,000. And in a way, it's a huge reason we have so much public memory of incarceration today. Japanese-American historical projects got funded by people donating from their redress checks. In the middle of this ocean, in the deepest of the beds, I had written down a poem that you never could have read. There's a time, there's a place for us, for every voice that never sang, for every When I present these songs, I don't really intend people to learn the complete factual history of what I'm trying to tell. I, I just want it to be a taste of the emotions involved and to cultivate this kind of empathy so that you'll go back and learn more about it. Kishibashi's songs and Omayari reference and respond to this history without, you know, being too schoolhouse rock about it. But on that note, Parker, can I confess something? Always. I'm pretty sure I first learned about Japanese-American internment from Mike Shinoda. The rapper from Linkin Park? That one, yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, my older cousin played me a song from his side project, Fort Minor. The Remember the Name song. Uh-huh, uh-huh. This is from that same album from 2005. Uh, the song is called Kenji. My father came from Japan in 1905. He was 15 when he immigrated from Japan. Shinoda's father's family was incarcerated at Manzanar, and he wrote this song based on interviews with relatives. It was World War II when this man named Kenji woke up. Ken was not a soldier. He was just a man with a family who... And you know, compared to like theme for Jerome by Kishibashi, this song is very literal. I mean, this is very earnest. It's probably one of the most just explicit songs about this incarceration that's ever been put out by someone this mainstream. And at least for me as a kid, learning this story, knowing it affected someone from a band I thought was very cool, and I still think Linkin Park is really cool, um, and learning that he was Asian American in this way that I didn't understand yet, mattered. So I wanted to know more about what this particular chapter of history means for Japanese Americans of all kinds, regardless of their relationship to incarceration. I know a boy and I know a girl in Manzanar. Coming up, we're going to peel back more Japanese-American incarceration history through different generations of musicians. Like, yeah, of course. Like, you're going you're gonna to find a way to sing. Don't it feel like a movie Teaching this girl how to walk Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. 
From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Parker. Jess. Code Switch. Now, Jess, you've been telling us about Japanese-American musicians who have been influenced by stories of World War II incarceration camps. Yeah, it's become a defining story for Japanese-American identity. Before, during, and after wartime, people had to make these navigations. Were they going to prove themselves to be good U.S. citizens? And did that mean they would have to be less Japanese? It becomes this sort of assimilative quest, right, that you want to be American. You were just recently put in a prison because you were not American enough. So how do you prove that you are, you know, 200% American? This is historian Erin Aoyama. She's getting her Ph.D. in American Studies at Brown University, and she's also a curatorial assistant at the Japanese American National Museum. Her work focuses on the Japanese American experience, particularly World War II and redress. And she tries to think of this need to assimilate in context. People were just trying to survive. And so some of like extending a historical kindness perhaps to my ancestors is to say like you didn't have time to think about how you were maintaining your cultural traditions or whether you were, you know, teaching your children Japanese and keeping that up. It was sort of a like, are you okay? Erin is Yonsei or fourth generation Japanese American. She grew up in New England, where she says as a kid, she loved how the historical stories about Revolutionary War and colonial America were reflected in places she could see and visit for herself. She didn't know about camp. We never talked about it. When Erin was a little older, though, maybe middle school age, she got the inkling of how her family was part of this bigger story. I remember at one point my dad saying to me, just around the dinner table, like mentioning this place, Heart Mountain, that my grandmother had lived during the war. And the name stuck with me because it has this sort of like beautiful sound to it, this sort of like romantic, you know, I don't know. I didn't really know what a camp was. I'm not really sure that my dad had a full understanding of what a camp was. Erin held on to this fact. She kind of waited for it to come up later in U.S. history class. But like, it didn't. Yeah, I mean, I barely learned about it in high school. Yeah, same. 
And I think that sort of lit this fire in me a little bit because I was sad I didn't get to like share my own family story in history class, but also because it made me realize that so many of the stories that were told are what count as American history are not the ones that shaped our families. Aaron had already been on the path of being like a history scholar, but with that fire in her, in undergrad, she started interviewing her father and his childhood neighbors about how their families experienced World War II. My grandmother passed away um, right before I started fifth grade, and my grandfather right at the beginning of eighth grade for me. And so I just never asked them any of these questions. I didn't know how to ask them those questions. Erin says her Japanese-American grandmother has a pretty typical Nisei, or second-generation story, growing up in Southern California. My grandmother had just started junior college when Pearl Harbor was bombed. So she had just sort of graduated from high school in 1940, moved out, it seemed, wasn't living with her family. Um, She and her older brother were sent to Pomona Assembly Center, which was one of the temporary detention centers built on the West Coast. Her parents went to Santa Anita, which was built at the Santa Anita racetracks in L.A., Um, And I haven't really been able to figure out too much about why they were separate or what that was like. So Aaron worked with Kishibashi during the development of Omayari. As a grad student in 2017, she had the opportunity to travel with a bunch of other students at Brown across the boundary of that exclusion zone, that line drawn up the West Coast. And... Kay sort of like invited himself on this road trip with a bunch of grad students, brought a cameraman, which was... Hilarious. They were already doing a trip to begin with, so I just jumped on, which is amazing. Erin is also a singer. During that trip, she was part of a music project called No No Boy, and alongside Kishibashi, also made music inspired by historical research. Erin ended up opening for a bunch of Kishibashi shows and talking offstage about the history and the ideas as he developed Omoyari. And they talked about stuff like how much personal history matters. I'm always curious about this idea that, like, you should care about a history if you can put yourself in the shoes of it. Like, to me, I, yes, in some ways, absolutely. Like, that is why I care about incarceration histories, because it touched, you know, my life in these ways that I don't understand. But I also hope for not needing to rely fully on empathy because I think that can be so limiting. Like, you should only care about something if you know that it would have happened to you. Like, that's actually not not the thing that we want. In 2018, Nono Boy entered the Tiny Desk Contest. They didn't win, but here's them being featured on NPR. Julian Saporiti and Aaron Ariyama, two doctoral students at Brown, created songs that illuminate the Asian-American experience in their multimedia project, Nono Boy. Don't it feel like a movie teaching this girl how to walk? This song is called Two Candles in the Dark, and it's a romantic snapshot of the root cellar at Heart Mountain, you know, like where they stored vegetables. Wind around past the skaters and ponds, just looking for a cut in the wire. So the song we sing, um, Two Candles in the Dark, is kind of 
a speculative piece thinking about what it would mean to sneak out. Uh, my grandmother was about 20 years old when she was at Heart Mountain, so thinking about living in a one-room barrack with her older brother and her parents um, and trying to get some time away, find a little bit of light in a really dark place, finding joy and finding life even from within a prison camp. So Aaron is singing about this sneaky date in the root cellar. I mean, that's sweet. It's like life goes on. Yeah, and it's based on visiting that cellar long after its prime and seeing years of, like, abandoned beer cans and improvised seating and understanding that it's it's always been a spot for teenagers to sneak off to. My grandmother, as far as I know, never talked about her time in camp beyond, like, acknowledging that she had been there. And so a lot of my research to this day still is, like, holding that and just holding the fact that, like, the one person that I really want to know a lot about, I can't ever know. Like, okay, as a historian, we're supposed to try and understand and know everything that we can. But what do you do when you just know that you're not going to know everything? And how does that, like, shift the way that you approach what knowledge can be and what, like, history can be and who counts and who gets to be part of the story? While younger generations and newer immigrants search for historical connections— The Japanese-American community has invested a lot into preserving this memory. Like, people who were incarcerated as children or teenagers are still alive. I don't have an accompanist, so I just have to sing a la carte. Like Mary Nomura. When she was 16 years old, she was incarcerated with her family and moved from L.A. County to Manzanar, deep in the California desert. This is her at a Japanese-American National Museum virtual event in 2020. And it's a song... That was written for me in camp by Mr. Lee Frizzell about the life of the young people who had no privacy. Everybody knew what everyone was doing and who you were dating and what you were doing. And I always used to call, I lovingly called it the Manzanar song. I know a boy and I know a girl in Manzanar. They try to feel that it makes no difference where you are. Mary's nickname was the Songbird of Manzanar. While she was incarcerated, she performed, she toured, she even cut records. A necessity must be a thing of public interest, not private property. No. Oh, this is the same kind of thing Aaron was singing about. Yeah, and it was like written and performed during incarceration. I think it's kind of stunning to think about how young lovers were probably slow dancing to this kind of thing, or maybe just like shooting each other knowing looks. The mess hall can be dinner at the Ritz while you lay your corsage. Well, when were they listening to music in the camps? I mean, eventually it was about as often as people listen to music in their life. A lot of it was because internees set up life for themselves in the bare-bones structures of the camps. Churches, temples, farms, newspapers, sports team, dances. People wanted the structure of normalcy, of community, you know, especially with kids around. And also, because the camps were put together so hastily, they weren't fully operational when thousands of people suddenly needed to live there. It's just as good to pretend it's not so important when you're true. It's, oh, oh, I forgot the rest of the word. It's not to show it when I can. Sorry, I started too low. But 
There were spaces for music and dance, both formal and informal, Japanese and American, because that's what people do. So what did that look like? My understanding is that there was a pretty strong generational divide even before the war. Issei, first-generation folks, held on to the traditions they grew up with in Japan. There are stories of kabuki theater productions coming together in New Mexico's camps, people handmaking props and instruments for classical dances. And for Nisei, the second generation, there was a pretty distinct cohort of them coming of age in the early 1900s, and they wanted to dance and play popular American music, particularly swing and jazz and big band stuff. Like, you know, these are people in their teens and early 20s who wanted to be defiantly American at a time when they were extremely aware that they weren't welcome into that. So as things change, many things still stay the same. Yeah. Mary Nomura has talked about how she didn't think she'd been able to have a singing career at all outside the camps. Here's her in a documentary from 2002. I've always aspired to be a singer on the radio because no, no way such a, uh, a Japanese is going to be wanting to get into the movies, but because of my love for music, I've always wanted to be on the stage or in the radio. And uh, being that I was in the camp like this, there's no way, but I was lucky that I was able to sing at some of these things in the camp, but if it wasn't for that, I would have really been stifled, you know, if I didn't have the opportunity to uh, pursue that music part. That's a hard irony, that the internment camp provided her with opportunities she wouldn't have ever had in white America. There are so many stories like this, many of them collected in this book called Reminiscing in Swing Time by George Yoshida, who was living with his family in Los Angeles before they were incarcerated in Poston, Arizona. He was 20. Yoshida writes of this feeling among Nisei while incarcerated. Quote, Didn't we pledge allegiance to the American flag all our lives? Hey, we're American, you know. Apple pie, baseball, and Chevrolet. Aren't we? George was a musician and band leader himself, and in his book, he documents dozens of Nisei groups playing jazz and swing before, during, and after the war. School friends and church groups, the American-born musicians who went back to Japan for opportunities to play professionally, some of whom got caught abroad during the war. He writes about the big bands that existed at every single camp and what happened to those musicians after the war. Yoshida has spoken about how when the order came down, his family, like a lot of others, burned a lot of their stuff that was Japanese. Um, in this case, records full of like children's music. They sold their piano. They were able to store a few trunks of stuff at their church. Here's a 2002 interview with him from the Densho Archive. Now, one thing I kept, which I took to camp for my personal use, was uh, a record-carrying case of 17 RPM records of my favorite pop music, Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey stuff. Carried them to camp, besides uh, another suitcase with spare pants and shirts. And my sister was very much upset because I took these records. What's the matter with you, George? but I could not bear leaving my records behind. George Yoshida wanted his records with him, even maybe to his detriment. It reminded me of something that came up with Erin Aoyama in her discussions with Kishibashi. You know, we had many conversations about, yeah, when people were told to, like, 
pack and take only what they could carry, he would take his violin. And that's a way into this sort of like, oh yeah, of course there were musicians in camp. And I know that because we know that we have like pictures and um, stories, but we also know that because musicians, there are musicians today. And like, that is what a musician does. You are silly and you don't pack a coat, you bring your violin. In November 2023, I went to the DC stop of Kishibashi's tour for Omayari, the movie. After the movie ended, Kay got back on stage to transition to the next part of the show, which was a live set. Who's connected with the internment or incarceration that would like to raise their hand and acknowledge that they were? I would like to thank you personally for allowing me to tell your story. From the back of the theater, I couldn't see many hands go up. But near me, two women cautiously raised their hands together. I was in reporting mode, so during intermission, I approached them, you know, thinking about what different people of different generations get from this kind of art. Yushibashi's album has been incredibly healing for me personally. It's allowed me to have a conversation with my family in a way about our history and to really heal from that. This is Linda Morris. She brought her mom, Mary Ishimoto Morris, to the show with her. We have been to Jerome, and to see it on the screen, and to hear the music, and to see the video, it it just overwhelmed me with emotion, knowing that it's my family that he's making a tribute to, and it just really overwhelmed me. The Morrises seem to have gotten a lot out of Omayari. And I found their perspective grounding. Our family was living in California when Pearl Harbor happened, and my grandmother's mother remembers digging a hole and throwing everything that was Japanese into that hole and and setting it on fire because they were so afraid and so fearful. Um, And shortly after that, they were forced from their homes and relocated to Arkansas. And... My grandmother's mother died months after entering camp at the age of 47, so it was just incredibly devastating for our family. You know, it's hard to even really share about these things and talk about them out loud. And so, I mean, I think that's healing for for that reason. My grandparents actually met and got married in the camps, which, you know, is, is something I think about a lot, but especially with Kishibashi's music, just painting a full picture of humanity in the camps is something that I, I don't know that we often see when we do talk about camp in, in mainstream culture. It's just so special because it offers a different way to experience and revisit that history that isn't just talking about it or reading about it, but actually being immersed in the feelings of it. Um, that's just been really impactful. And that's our show. You can follow us on Instagram at NPR Codeswitch. If email is more your thing, ours is codeswitch at npr.org. And subscribe to our newsletter. You can find that at npr.org slash codeswitch newsletter. You can follow the podcast on the NPR app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Another way to support our work here is to sign up for Code Switch Plus. It's small but really makes a difference for us, and you'll get to listen to every Code Switch episode without any ads. Check it out at plus.npr.org/codeswitch. And thanks to everyone who's already signed up. This episode was produced by Christina Kala. It was edited by Dahlia Mortada. Our engineer was Maggie Luthar. Thanks to Joy Yamaguchi and Greta Pittinger, as well as Kishibashi for use of music from Omoyari. We used audio from the Densho Archive and the documentary Words, Weavings, and Songs produced by the Japanese American National Museum. And a big shout out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive. Xavier Lopez, Leah Danella, Verlin Williams, Loyal Zaraga, Chloe Weiner, and Jean Demby. I'm B.A. Parker. I'm Jess Kung. Hydrate. Bye. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.